Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Apologies for the ads. As an independent one-woman show, ads help me recover some of my costs. If you want to skip the ads, sign up to the exclusive feed. All episodes are free from ads, and there's full-length bonus episodes as well. The link is in the show notes. You can also make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com backslash a million OTW. And on with the show, as they say. This is A Million Other Choices, and I am your host, Kim. I have no idea how to introduce today's case, other than that it stinks. It's terrible. This is the murder of Shannon Guyette. In the early summer of 1992, 36-year-old Shannon Guyette was working as a computer programmer, which tells me she was a bit of a go-getter. Computer programming in the late 1990s and the fledgling years of the internet was a very male-dominated field. Unfortunately, I don't know a lot about Shannon, the daughter of Charlie and Beverly Underwood, and her life before 1992. And if anyone knew her, I would be very interested in talking to you about Shannon and what kind of vibrant young woman she was. This story was very high profile back in 1992, at least on the West Coast, but all that is left is some of the court documents and some old news clippings. Court documents are great for who testified to what and evidence and whatnot, but the courts don't really get into who the victim was in life. And I guess that's kind of a good thing. It keeps matters very factual, and a victim is a victim, so getting into the details of their character could create bias or something. But I like to know about the person. The victim impact statements, I mean, that might give me some clues into her personality, but they are long since buried in court archives. But I can tell you that she was quite striking with trademark silver locks of hair that had a windswept devil-may-care kind of attitude springing from her head in curls and cowlicks. But she took pride in her appearance, dressing very fashionably and letting her hair walk on the wild side, giving the impression of a woman who lived by society's rules, but had a side to her that was a little bit hippie and free-spirited. I know that before 1986, she had been married and had a son named Jason. At some point, she divorced and her and her son moved in with the man that would become her second husband and his fourth wife named Doug Guyatt into his house on Bel Air Road in Langford, B.C. On March 19, 1988, the couple married and Doug legally adopted Jason. Doug sold the house in Langford and he used the $40,000 in equity as a down payment at 863 Cecil Blog Road in Colwood. Doug had some kids of his own from his previous marriages, but I think that they were all adults or at least not living with them at the time. So it was just Jason, Doug, and Shannon. Colwood is a waterfront community in Vancouver Island, just southwest of Victoria, of about 19,000 people, and makes up part of Greater Victoria. 
On June 17, 1992, Shannon drove Jason part of the way to his school where she would normally drop him off at the halfway point for him to walk the rest of the way and then Shannon would turn off that route and head to the Ministry of Transport where she worked on Blanchard Street. During her lunch break, she walked over to the Eaton's, which I'm not sure if the U.S. has an Eaton's. It was just like a big department store. Uh, I don't even know if we still have them. Anyways, her friend Joan Wilson worked there, so she came by to visit her for a little bit. And, and while she was there, she looked for a new pair of shoes. She was in her work clothes, which consisted of a denim dress with a white cardigan and her trademark hair pulled back into a ponytail, which Joan remembers very fondly looked like a silver mane. Shannon mentioned to Joan that she was heading home right after work to change and then take her son to his baseball practice and then was going to go out with a girlfriend, Diane Jenkins. Before returning to work, she popped into the Susie Shear store in the mall because she had brought with her a purple colored skirt and she wanted to find a matching blouse for it. And she bought a floral blouse as well as a pair of silver earrings. At 2 p.m., she called her friend Diane Jenkins and the two of them confirmed their plans to go over the floor plans for some renovations that Diane was planning for her basement. She told her that she'd planned to head straight home, change, grab something to eat, and then throw some clothes in the dryer and would be at her place by about 7 p.m. At 4.05 to 4.10, somewhere in there, she reminded her boss, Sam Kemmel, that she wouldn't be in the next day because she had a work-related computer course that she was going to be at. At 4.30, the very social Shannon stopped at her hairdressers for a quick visit, I don't believe she got her hair done. She just stopped in for a visit. And then Shannon seemingly disappeared into the early evening light. Jason, her son, had arrived home around 4.35. He had called home earlier in the day and Doug had answered. Jason was hoping to get out of this baseball barbecue that was being planned for that evening. But Doug told him that Shannon had wanted him to go to it. So shortly after he got home, Doug drove him to the game. It was like a game and a barbecue. At 5.30, a man living at 3324 Hazelwood Street named Patrick Rosen looked out of his living room window to see a red firebird parked on the street outside of his house. Expecting his niece from California, he figured that maybe she had arrived early and so he went out to greet her, only the red car was empty and the red firebird would later be identified as belonging to Shannon and Hazelwood Drive is about a two-minute drive from Cecil. At about seven, Jason called the house from the baseball field and told his dad that he's ready to come home. So Doug went to pick him up and they stopped at a video store to rent some games and then returned home where the two of them played a few games and both went to bed around 11 p.m. Shannon, remember, had planned on meeting Diane Jenkins after work, so neither were surprised that she had not come home yet. The next morning at 8.35, when Shannon failed to show up for the computer course, the instructor called her office to see if she had forgotten, but Valerie Irwin said that she hadn't come in yet. So she called the Guyette house and spoke to Jason. And Jason asked Doug where Shannon was and Doug and was heard in the background stating that she had left for work already. At lunchtime, Doug phoned Shannon's work and asked for her. Doug had said to the person that answered the phone that she had made some arrangements to meet her parents for lunch and that she hadn't arrived yet. Um, they had asked Doug to call and then see if she was maybe running a bit late. And in a bit of a TMI, Doug mused that Shannon maybe had not come home the night before because he had run off for about four days a couple of weeks before that. And maybe Shannon was just getting back at him. 
So now there's a couple of things to mention here. Shannon and Doug's marriage was on the rocks and Shannon had a few weeks prior visited with a lawyer to start hammering out a divorce agreement and the house on Cecil was currently for sale. And the reason that Shannon was to go over the floor plans with Diane the night before was because she had plans to move in with her and Jason into their place And yes, you did remember correctly that earlier that morning, Doug said that Shannon had left for work already, Um, but that had been in front of Jason and within his earshot. So normally you don't confess to a young person that their mom didn't come home, either to keep them from worrying or thinking that their mom was doing something that they weren't supposed to do. So a couple of minutes after this TMI conversation, Richard Sims, who's the couple's realtor, dropped by the house with an offer on the house and for them to look it over. And when he arrived, Doug was on the phone and he was pacing back and forth on the phone with someone. And when he hung up, he told Richard that Shannon had not come home the night before. Doug's eyes were puffy like he'd been crying. And Shannon was reported missing to the police when no one was able to verify seeing her after work on the 17th. And that's when her firebird was located outside of the Rosen home. All of the doors were locked and nothing inside the car appeared out of place. There were two fingerprints found in the car and they later came back to Diane Jenkins, who admitted that she had been in the car a number of times. No other prints were found that didn't belong to Shannon or Jason. The next day, police tracked down a man named Greg Barnes, who had dated Shannon 17 years ago, but had recently kind of rekindled their romance a little bit. Greg denied having an outright affair with Shannon, but admitted that he had been back in touch with her, telling the police, do you want the gut feeling? She's laying in a ditch somewhere dead. Greg told police that he had taken the 17th off of work to go to a small claims court and worked at the fire hall where he worked until 6 p.m. Then he worked on his second job at Allied Towing, and then he stopped to visit a friend before heading home around 11 p.m. All of it panned out as accurate and verifiable. On June 20th, Richard Sims had to host a showing at the house, and when meeting at the house, Doug told him that with Shannon missing, he was afraid that he wasn't going to be able to make his next mortgage payment. So Richard asked him if they had any life insurance on the mortgage, and Doug had said that he didn't really want to think like that at this time. But Richard told him that the best he would be able to do for the time being was to notify the bank that his payment was going to be late because even with life insurance on the mortgage, Shannon would have to be missing for seven years before he would be able to collect the money anyways, because Richard was pretty sure that was the waiting period at that time. On his way out, Richard told Doug that he needed to clean up some of the garbage and pop cans that were in the ditch between their property and the neighbor's property. On June 21st, the constable phoned Doug and asked him about Shannon's family doctor and dentist for their missing persons report. And when Doug asked him, like, why do you know, why do you need that for the missing persons report? The constable told him that if the police were to find a body, they usually identify it by dental records. So not exactly putting Doug at ease. On the morning of the 28th of June, Doug stopped by Shannon's parents' place to pick up Jason to take him out for lunch at McDonald's. And Jason had been staying at his grandparents since his mom had vanished for a reason that I'm not exactly sure about. Doug was a firefighter working for the Department of National Defense, so he probably wasn't able to watch him properly without his mom around to make sure that he did his homework and didn't have parties or something. I'm not really sure about that, but... After McDonald's, they went back to the Guyatt house. Patricia Harvey, who's their neighbor, was outside talking to another neighbor when they pulled into the driveway. Doug and Jason got out of the car and Jason went inside. 
Doug sort of chit-chatted with Patricia for a little bit and then went inside and came out with, with a black garbage bag griping about goddamn kids and their garbage and then headed to the ditch where Richard had said that he should clean up the pop cans and papers. Patricia kind of watched him for a little bit. Doug knelt down to pick up something and then he started to scream and hyperventilate. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Patricia asked him what was wrong, but he couldn't answer and he was just wailing. So Patricia, sensing that he had found something she probably didn't want to see, uh, she called 911. And Jason had been on the phone with a friend when he heard his dad making weird, loud noises outside. And when he looked out, his dad was screaming and grabbing at the grass beside the house. He tried to go out to see what was happening, but Patricia shushed him back inside. When the police arrived... Doug walked them to the ditch and pointed to a white plastic garbage bag. And inside was the severed head of Shannon Guyette. Her trademark silver hair had been cut down to about an inch long. Now, Patricia didn't really care for Doug and had wondered if Doug had something to do with Shannon's disappearance. So she was quite happy to march down to the police station and tell them that on the morning of June 22nd, she had been up early. She was woken up by her husband who got home from his fishing trip at 1 a.m. And when she went to turn out the light to go back to bed, she saw Doug driving a car, but without its lights on and not driving it so much as kind of letting it coast down his driveway and out onto Cecil until it reached the end of the road. And then he started the car and then drove off. The car returned about 10, 15 minutes later, and then there was clanging and banging noises coming from the Guyot's garage. She testified later that there was a scraping sound like something being dragged on concrete. Shannon's remains, which really only consisted of her head, were examined by pathologist Carrie Pringle. Shannon was indeed identified by dental records and wrote in her report that Shannon's hair had been cut rather haphazardly. It was moist, dirty, and unkept and the bag also contained dirt, grass, and leaves, suggesting that it might have been buried at one point before being put into the bag. Her head had been severed from the body after death by multiple strokes of a knife cutting from under the jaw at the front space between C2 and C3 of the cervical spine at the back. 
and there was some fracturing of the jawbone on the right side near the ear. And this had occurred after death and could be the result of dropping the head. Uh, there was no evidence of trauma before death. And as a result, the pathologist concluded that the cause of death was related to the part of the body that they didn't have. And based on an ambient temperature of 20 degrees Celsius, the pathologist guessed from the discoloration and breakdown of the tissues that death had occurred three to five days earlier. Forensic entomologist Dr. Gail Anderson examined Shannon's head and determined based on the development of fly larvae that death had occurred no later than June 20th and had been exposed to more warmth than would have been provided by the ditch that it was found in on the 28th, again suggesting that she had been killed on or around the 17th when she disappeared and then possibly buried, dug up, and then placed in the ditch. So all of this science stuff pointed to the fact that Shannon had been killed, buried, dug up, her head removed, probably the body reburied, and the head put in the bag and then thrown into the ditch a few days later. So I think the best way to do this is to start back at the beginning, but from sort of a different perspective. So it turns out that Shannon had filed for divorce on January 15th, 1992, and they actually had a signed separation agreement giving Doug $10,000 off the top of the sale of the house, and then the rest would be divided equally. They both said no to spousal support, and she turned down the right to part of Doug's pension, which I think is pretty fair. Well, Doug worked at the Department of National Defense, and he talked to a co-worker about his impending divorce. And what he told his co-worker, William, was that if they divorced, his wife, who, in his opinion, brought nothing into the marriage, would get to keep the jewelry that he gave her and $25,000 from the house. And he told William that, quote, I'd rather kill the fucking bitch than see her get anything. I don't know why I'm going through this. It'll be a hell of a lot cheaper just to kill her. End quote. After Shannon turned up dead, or at least her head turned up, he turned to the police with that little tidbit. And it turns out in February or March, he spoke to a different co-worker and told him as well that he would kill Shannon if she tried to take his money. And the evidence, although circumstantial on Doug, continued to grow. On June 30th, Doug phoned the bank and told them that he wasn't going to be able to cover his upcoming mortgage payment. And the bank told him that, you know, just don't worry about it. Give us the death certificate and we'll be able to get the insurance money to pay the claim. And this was, of course, after her head had been found and she was no longer missing. So he didn't have to wait the seven years anymore, which is very convenient. He applied for a passport in October of 1992 after a search warrant turned up the purple blouse that she had purchased on the day that she went missing, proving that she had actually made it home that night after all. And then in December, he visited his local library and filled out a reference request that stated, I wish to know which countries have and which countries don't have extradition treaties with Canada and the USA. Later in December, Doug's son from a previous marriage, one of four in total, asked if he could borrow $20 and his dad pulled about $5,000 in cash out of a sock drawer and told him, he said if the police had charged him for the murder of Shannon Guyette, I do recall him telling me that the money was for the departure of the country. However, it also turns out that Doug was facing charges of sexual assault against his stepdaughter, probably part, 
if not the full reason Shannon had filed for the divorce in the first place. The plastic bags found in the Guyatt house were similar to the ones that contained Shannon's head. So the Crown Prosecutor's case against Doug is summarized in the appeal documents. It says, The case against Doug Guyatt was circumstantial. The Crown's case against him was that he was unhappy that his wife was leaving him and resented the fact that she would take with her things he thought she did not deserve from the marriage. He was so angry he exploded in rage when talking to two of his co-workers at different times. When Shannon Guyatt arrived home sometime after 5 p.m. on June 17th, he killed her. He moved her vehicle to Hazelwood Street and hid her body somewhere. He lied when he said that she did not come home on June 17th. The skirt she had with her at Susie Shear was hanging up in her closet. On June 20th, Richard Sims told Douglas Guyette that he could not collect insurance without proof of death. On June 21st, he learned the police could identify a person on the basis of dental records. The surreptitious trip to the early hours of the next morning had something to do with the disposing of the body or retrieving the head. The fact that Shannon Guyette's head turned up in the ditch in front of her own home 11 days after her disappearance is important. Was it just coincidence that the head Shannon Guyette turned up in front of the Guyette home two days before the next mortgage payment was due in the house? Miss Guyette had been dead for a minimum of eight days when her head was dumped in the ditch. Who would go to such lengths and why? A rational explanation was that Douglas Guyette knew that his wife had to be declared dead for him to collect the mortgage insurance. He knew as well that bodies may be identified through dental records. Thus, only the head needed to be recovered to serve his purpose. The head was in a glad kitchen catcher's bag which contained some markings on it, similar to markings found on some of the kitchen catcher bags found in Mr. Guyette's house. Other evidence suggested Mr. Guyatt worried he might be charged with the murder of his wife. He, did, he hid some money away, obtained a passport, and intended to leave for a country which did not have an extradition treaty with Canada. And in October of 1994, he was convicted of second-degree murder. He never admitted his guilt, lost all of his appeals, never applied for parole, and died in prison on August 13, 2014 in Abbotsford of unknown causes. With his death appears to have died any hope of finding the rest of Shannon's body. In 2018, contractors were working to demolish part of the DND or the Department of National Defense in Rocky Point, and they found a number of news clippings about Shannon's murder, but it hasn't led to her body at this point. Jason was 13 when his mom was murdered. He now works in the oil field and has a young son who never had a chance to meet his grandmother Shannon. And that was the terrible murder of Shannon Guyette. And I'm going to be back again next week with another horrible case. As always, thank you so much for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.